the FT. Hello. This was the week when Greece and the EU failed to agree, when Jeb Bush and Donald Trump launched their campaigns for the White House, when authorities in California decided that Uber drivers are employees, and when Swiss investigators revealed there are at least 100 suspicious bank transactions involving FIFA. I'm Henry Mance and this is Best of the FT Podcast, where we negotiate the week's top stories in the time it takes for Greece and the EU to shout at each other and storm out of the room. On today's show, we'll be discussing the world's biggest beer company, the race for the White House, and whether there is a tech bubble. But we start with Greece, which may or may not default on debt repayments due in the coming weeks. What is the government's negotiating strategy? The FT's Europe editor, Tony Barber, had a guess. I think that uh, their strategy, insofar as one can call it coherent since January, has been to try to force the decision-making process all the way up to the level of heads of European governments. That's to say they want Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor in particular, and other Eurozone prime ministers and presidents to be the ones who strike the deal I think they think that they will be able to extract slightly better terms from, let's say, Angela Merkel, because she has the bigger picture in mind, namely that she doesn't want to be the German Chancellor who presided over even a partial fragmentation of European Monetary Union. The Greek Prime Minister, Alex Tsipras, is struggling to control elements of his own party, Syriza. His problems may get even bigger if Greece does exit the euro, Tony Barber said. There have always been divisions of opinion within Syriza about the merits of staying in the euro. There is a hardline group that has never wanted to be in it at all and would happily get out, whether they've made a correct economic calculation is an altogether different matter. And then there are some that are more inclined to strike a compromise deal with Greece's creditors. Now, those strains would come rapidly to the surface in the event of a default, and I think it's unlikely that the government would be able to stay in power. If things do go wrong, Greece could become a geopolitical nightmare on Europe's doorstep. I think they're particularly concerned about instability in in the Balkans. There isn't really one state there all the way from Bosnia to Macedonia to Kosovo where you could call the situation since the end of the Cold War and the Yugoslav Wars uh, stable. And I think they're worried about the way Greece, uh, if it were to fall into some sort of chaos as a result of default and even exit from the Eurozone, you'd see things like organised crime and corruption and uh, irregular migration, these kind of issues would expand in scope. If all that makes you want to drink, then look no further than AB InBev. It's the company that makes more beer than anyone else, and its brands include Budweiser, Stella Artois and Corona. This week in the FT, we have two big pieces on the company. I'm joined by Scheherazade Donescu, who co-wrote them. Scheherazade, what makes AB InBev such a source of fascination for people in the business world? The main reason, I think, is that there's an aura about this company, particularly its Brazilian founders and their business ethic, which is very much geared towards cost-cutting. It's a very driven company with a really idiosyncratic management style. So it's not like working in Google with free jelly beans and free childcare and all this? No, not at all. They cut down on company perks. But what they do share with those guys is that they're very casual. So the chief executive, all the senior execs are dressed in jeans, no ties, nothing like that. So they're very relaxed, but they're very, very target driven. Every single one of the company's 155,000 employees is given a target to meet. And if they don't meet that? 
Well, they're given a chance, six months, maybe another year. Their careers are reviewed. And, you know, after a while, the chief executive, Carlos Brito, will say to them, sorry, it's not working out here. Maybe you'll have a better, brighter future somewhere else. Now, this has obviously worked because it's not only the biggest brewing company in the world, but it's actually the most profitable. It makes more money for each sort of pound it spends than than anyone else. How much bigger can it get? I mean, could it buy another big drinks company? Could it swell further? Well, at the moment, it makes uh, one in five beers in the world. If it were to buy the second largest brewer, S.A.B. Miller, that makes Grolsch and Peroni, it would become very large indeed, and it would be brewing one in three beers in the world. And I think that would really be the maximum size it could hope to attain in the beer world. But of course, we don't know what they're going to do next. They've certainly grown through M&A very successfully, but their next move is what really interests people. And we should say that this company, although it's been a a massive success, it isn't perfect. I mean, Budweiser, which we mentioned they own, is not the US's favourite beer anymore. No, it's not. That's quite right. It's lost out to Bud Light, which is, well, another one of the uh, AB InBev uh, beers, but also to their arch rival, Miller Coors. So they're trying to get Budweiser back into growth. But as you know, craft beer has been very much on the increase. It now has something like a 10% share of the US market, up from just 5% five years ago. And all the mainstream beer companies are having to fight back. Great. Thanks very much for explaining that to us. On to technology. Brent Hoberman founded LastMinute.com, one of the British stars of the dot-com boom and bust. He told the FT's Caroline Daniel how tech entrepreneurs should prepare for a possible crash. The riskiest thing is running out of cash when the market shut down. And I think I remember in 2000, there was lots of rhetoric about this time it's different. There won't be a burst. You remember in early 2000, people were saying, no, this will carry on forever. And we're seeing some of that rhetoric today as well, saying, no, there won't be a correction. Um, So I think there is, once again, this debate about will there be a correction? And therefore, as an entrepreneur, what do you do about the possibility that there might be? And clearly, the answer is raise as much as you can now. And when you see companies like Uber and Spotify raise big amounts of money from investors today, is it a bubble? To me, let's turn back to Mary Meeker now, for all those, all those years ago, where... Who was indeed your um, analyst, I think. Who was our analyst, and she had a great quote. She got a bit chastised for not sort of predicting it. But she did say one thing pre-bubble. She said that you can't value all these companies as if they're going to win in their sector. So those that are going to win are massively undervalued, but 90% of them will fail because they're not going to win. And I think today we're seeing a bit of that where there is a bit of the... For example, people grabbing onto the Uber valuation of 50 plus billion and doing Uber for everything, you know, Uber for services and all of these things. And you'll see multiple players in those spaces. So I think there have to be some consolidation and shake out there. But big picture, you're not seeing normal consumers' money invested in the public markets at businesses that have enormous risk profiles. That may not be a good thing. Now take a listen to this. I may not be the youngest candidate in this race, but I will be the youngest woman president in the history of the United States. Hillary Clinton is on the campaign trail, and our Washington bureau chief, Megan Murphy, explained her basic approach. For many weeks now, Mrs. Clinton has signaled that she will tack leftward in this race, reflecting the sort of strength of uh, movement behind figures like Elizabeth Warren and even Bernie Sanders, another rival for the Democratic nomination. Meanwhile, Hillary's potential rival, Jeb Bush, is struggling in his bid for the Republican nomination. 
Jeb is seen as someone who could win a general election. The problem he faces is getting through the primary. Uh, he's really struggled to attract momentum. He was thought of as the front runner five months ago, four months ago. I don't think you'd find very many people who would say he's the clear front runner now. As for Donald Trump, we're sure you've heard enough about him already. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.